0: Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. I have two guests with me today Dr. Sheila Marcus and Dr. Sarah Mohiuddin. Both are with the University of Michigan and graciously agreed to do this podcast as a dual presentation. Dr. Marcus is the Section Director of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Michigan. She runs MC3, a large statewide program providing primary care consultations to primary care physicians throughout the state. Additionally, she co leads the Infant and Early Childhood Clinic at the University of Michigan, where children with early evidence of autism are evaluated. Dr. Mohia Dean is the director of the Multidisciplinary Autism Program at the University of Michigan. She is also The Fellowship Training Director of the Child Psychiatry Fellowship Program at Michigan Medicine and Co-Director of Behavioral Health Sciences Sequence at the University of Michigan Medical School. She is passionate about educating medical students, residents, fellows, and other physicians about childhood mental health and the care of individuals with autism spectrum disorders and developmental disabilities across the lifespan. I am so excited to have both of these wonderful physicians with me today. So sit back. Get a pencil and paper and take a listen. Good morning, Sarah and Sheila. I am so grateful to have you here. And this is the first time I've had two people um, on the podcast at the same time. So I feel like we're having a little party this morning. Sarah and I
1: work closely together, so it'll be fun. It'll be a little bit like we were back in the office.
0: Coffee in the the closet.
2: (laughs) That's where I am.
0: (laughs) So, I'm we have a ton of information to cover, and I'm just gonna let listeners know I'm gonna try and plow through some of this. And you know, Sarah and Sheila are going to really just jump in where it's appropriate for them or when they want to add something. And we may definitely have to revisit this because you know, autism can be what two, three day conferences and you know, a year of training, right? So, I, I'm don't have any delusions that we can do at all, but we're going to give it a go. So, Sheila, I'm going to start with you. And, you know, we think about picking up autism in those toddler years, mostly because, at least from a pediatric viewpoint, we start seeing some language dish delays and issues. And um, But I've heard that there are some kids that you could even pick up earlier, like at nine months, because they don't look at parents in the right way? What should we be looking for? And are there some subtle signs that we should be more attuned to?
1: Well, it's a great question. And thank you, first of all, for allowing us to be here, because this is a topic near and dear to our hearts. um, And both Sarah and I see the littlest kids. so. So I would say one of the things that we hear commonly from parents is, I was worried. I was so worried very early on. And I, people didn't, didn't hear me or sort of said, well, let's just wait and see. And so the first bit of advice I'd have is if a parent brings to you and and you all know your parents well, uh, but if a parent who's an astute observer and somebody whose opinions you've always trusted says that, number one, believe them. Some of the earliest signs that we hear about are number one, as you point out, a child who isn't looking or a child who's fascinated exclusively by um, looking at objects or leaves or contrast. Now, little, little babies, of course, look at contrast. That's not a concern. But a baby that looks only at contrast to the exclusion, beginning at somewhere between and 12 months of age, a baby should begin to track, to look at you, to look into your eyes and to fall in love with you. And if parents are saying, that's not happening, I I just worry that he looks, he gaze averts all the time. So that would be something. I can tell you an anecdote about our own granddaughter. And this was probably around the age of Eight months. So even before big time you know, around the time big time stranger anxiety was emerging, my husband and I came down to visit. Uh, she's neuro, she's neurotypical, but I'm just saying this to point out what you can see and when. And we came in the kitchen door, and Claire looked at her mom and dad. she looked at us, she looked back at her mom and dad. And that is this it's sort of social referencing to say, Are these people okay on checking in with you very early to to see? And so that that stuff begins to emerge very early in the first year of life. Um, Very soon after that, a child can do something that's called social referencing or for instance, looking at an object themselves, looking at the bunny in their world, maybe pointing at the bunny a little later on, usually with full hand before index finger, looking back. And that is, again, to say, I'm including you, mom and dad, in my world just for social reasons, not because I want more juice, not because I want to nurse, not because I'm wet. I want to include you in my world. Um, And it's pretty subtle, but you'll know it when it's there. Little babies will also look up at you. They might put up their arms. That's a gesture. That's a very early gesture. But you're looking at the unfolding of very early gestures to signify their wants. So those are the beginnings of nonverbal communication. Um, and so some of the, those are some of the things that, that we see. We also, you might see parents often talk about regulatory disturbances, and those are very nonspecific. So I wouldn't say a child who has regulatory difficulties is autistic, but more commonly, they may be very difficult to settle or too quiet. We didn't even know he was there. Those kinds of
0: things. Seems like sleep too. Some of those kids have just really difficult, there just can be difficult babies and hard to soothe maybe because there's that lack of tune in. I love how you describe though that reference. I and mean, it's such a beautiful thing to see that and that must be really concerning and hard for parents when it doesn't happen like why isn't my baby love me? Why isn't my baby looking at me?
1: And I think of course parents also bring their own sensitivities to the equation and if a mom or a dad has had their own struggles or mood problems and the baby is not looking at them, they sometimes are afraid to bring it up because they assume it's my fault. It must be because I was depressed or my baby just doesn't, my baby's rejecting me. My baby mm-hmm. doesn't love me. And it's just, it's so very sad when you see children, you know, even at three or four, where the parents say, we didn't bond. This baby doesn't love me, and and it's not true. The baby does love you. He just
0: can't show
2: it in the way that typical babies do. Would you agree,
0: Sarah? Is there anything
2: you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I think everything that Sheila was mentioning is you know similar things to what I would say. Other things that um, kind of come forward are I would say that um, parents. Kind of kids who are at risk or who end up being diagnosed kind of say both ends of the spectrum. Like one, that the kid is hyper responsive or, or over responsive to negative stimuli, like can't sleep, crying all the time, not easily soothed. But then there's also a set of parents who say the opposite, like super easy baby. It was like he learned to play on his own at three months. Um and has been very easy, so you kind of hear both um, sides. And you know, the I think Sheila's first comment about um, believing parents is probably the most important one. And I think that I think from a pediatrician perspective that you know I don't mean that kind of in a challenging way, but I will say that most parents who come in to see us say that they did have concerns and that they expressed those concerns and that they were given a wait and see approach. And, and so generally, you know, the other advice that I give pediatricians is that you don't have a lot of time in the office and you won't have a lot of time. Like what Sheila and I are describing are like things that like they happen in the blink of an eye. And some of the studies suggest that even like highly experienced autism diagnosticians miss those signs the majority of the times in short visits. So I think the expectation that you're going to see all of it or be able to really gain all of the history in a single visit probably isn't realistic. And so what I usually suggest is that if a parent expresses concerns about social engagement or eye contact or responsivity, and or you as a clinician or physician have like a, "Mm, there's something funny here, usually what I suggest is, like you may or may not have um, obtained screening or rating forms already, but usually I would say tell the parent to come back in for a visit outside of the well-child visit just to talk about this piece. So tell the parent, you know, you have concerns or I- I'm kind of like wondering, maybe we should talk about their development some more. Um like you guys have all these handouts for development, kind of give them out and say, "Do you think you could think about some of these things and either note them down or like keep them in your mind and come back and see me in a month and let's talk some more about it and see what you think and maybe talk to some other people who see your baby, you know, if it's you know a sibling or a grandparent or a daycare provider, um, and get their input too, and let's chat again because I think what a lot of parents tell us is like I had concerns or my pediatrician shared my concerns and then we're going to wait until the next visit which could be eight months later or four months later which is a huge amount of time in the life of a baby so it's important that you kind of and you have so much so many other things you're trying to do in a well-child visit right Uh, so it's the
0: list becomes longer the anticipatory guidance is so long and i frequently have used that um the ages and stages questionnaire you know the for example the 9 month if you look at the age ratings like span it's like 8 months to 10 months so sometimes i'll tell the parents go home put it away for 2 to 4 weeks and then pull it out and see if there's any you know changes and mm-hmm. then come back and and again let's let's talk about that and um i like that that you know Tell me more about what your concerns are, what you're seeing.
1: I was just going to piggyback on what Sarah has said. I agree with all of that. And the other technique I have sometimes used with parents, because the other thing to know is that especially in this age group, the stranger anxious age group, the child you see in the room with you is different than the child that the parent sees. So if there's any way a parent could If you're bringing them back for that visit, if you could videotape this little one doing some of these behaviors, or, and I recognize probably most primary care offices don't have an observation room, even a waiting room, where you just watch the baby with the parent without your presence. Sometimes you'll see a baby, you know, I'll be worried. I put the baby with the parent alone, and it's you see the points and the brings and the gives and the shows and the, you know, everything you need to see, and you're like, Ah, this is fine and sometimes you think oh maybe it's just me and you put them in the room with the parent alone and no it it's not just you know
0: sarah was even saying before we got started about how the virtual why don't you talk about how yeah telemedicine might be an advantage
2: yeah so i was i was just gonna piggyback on that for sheila's comment which is um You know, it's been interesting kind of shifting to virtual evaluations with the pandemic. And uh, one thing that a lot of us have been talking about is the utility of it, especially in these younger kids, Um, because as Sheila was mentioning, when they come into the office and it's, you know, associated with shots or like, you know, yesterday I saw a kid uh, who was three and the parent told us we were not allowed to use the word doctor or have anything doctor visible in the background for fear that the kid would not present as they usually do, right? And so it's really, there is something really nice about being able to see somebody virtually. And again, the same kid yesterday was a great example. Um, So, you know, we will spend some time kind of watching the kid and the parent interact with each other with their home toys, in their home space, with their comfort items. Um, then you can kind of see all of the above, how they react to siblings, how they react to their pet. And then, you know, what I will tell the parent is, and we mimic this in the office too, is now you and I are going to talk and you're going to be distracted away from your kid. And now I want to see how your child kind of gets your attention or brings things to show you or comes to you for comfort without you prompting them um, and like scaffolding them up throughout the interaction. Because even when we see a kid in the office, there's so many things that we do as adults naturally to try to make a kid feel comfortable or present at their best. We do that and the parents do that. Like they they all want, we all the parents and clinicians, we all want to see the kid at their best, right? Um and sometimes in the doctor's office at their worst, but um, this really gives us a chance. It was really interesting. So, you know, just an example with this kid, you know, I don't think I would have, um, and I did not see the entire time until the very end of the visit that the kid, and this is almost an hour in, that the kid was then laying on his back, like looking through his fingers. And, you know, for a kid who clearly is high IQ from high IQ parents, very high functioning, it's not something I would have expected to see. And I don't, had I seen them in the office, I don't think I would have seen it because dad then mentioned, it was like what he does in that very specific corner with this beanbag, with a specific book, you know? So it was, it's so fascinating to see that um, just how natural the kids look and you know to clue into the parents like oh is this what they typically do and you i'm getting so much more of that with these virtual visits than i got from the in office visits where parents would be like okay you're saying my kid has autism but they were not great today but they were not comfortable but these are not their toys right um,
0: well and i think right now um you know a lot of us are doing televisits and i think that's great to know that you know we can glean a lot of information Um, from those type of visits. And maybe rather than bringing them back in, you know, a month, we do a video visit. Yeah. And I
2: prep, we try to prep the parents. Now we didn't realize that we would be doing this in the beginning, but um, now what we tell the parents is, is that like, okay, we're going to be talking to you, but I want your camera face the other way. So Mm. we're going to keep an eye on your kid the whole time. Oh, I love that. That's so a great you're getting, pearl. <laughs> right. So you're getting so much more eyes on time with the kid that is so natural. Yeah. Um, so that part is really great. And the parents are like, they keep wanting to like turn the, they want to, sure. they want to do this face to face with you. But, but I tell them like, for me, the biggest thing is I I need to hear your voice, but I need to see them
1: very nice. I think some parents, especially parents who really don't want this diagnosis and are worried about it, they don't even realize how much, when we're, when we're doing the feedback, we will say to them, overall, you've done such an amazing job scaffolding your child and moving your child as you want to, and as they should toward typical behaviors. But in, in so doing, they don't fully recognize that in a busy classroom with lots of kids, this child will look quite different. Without somebody gently turning to them always and saying, "Look at me," oh, look here, you know, they're they're just unconsciously
0: trying trying to get their child to do certain kinds of things. So that was going to be my next question. What do you do when I, you know, when a parent comes in, they don't raise the concern, but you know, your your radar's up. And, um, you know, I sometimes have said, I've noticed a couple things that are making me wonder, have you, have you or your family ever had any, you know, concerns about development, but man, is that touchy? Do you guys have any strategies, techniques, things that you can share?
1: Sure. So, um, usually we begin asking that you, you've present, you've told us about lots of behaviors that are difficult. I'll ask them at a, at a beginning, what are your hypotheses or what do you think? Sometimes, not always, autism will come up in there. You know, if, if not, I might ask, have you ever Googled or thought about this possibility? And most people will say yes, and some will say, and I'm worried, and some will say yes, but I don't think they have it because they don't demonstrate X, Y, and Z criteria, and therefore it's not it. What I typically say in the population that is is very adamant that this is not what it is, is would you be okay if we at least did some... Ad- I want to make sure we're not missing anything and we, we want to at least get some additional testing to to look at all kinds of things, which is true. Look at language, look at overall cognitive capacity. And then I think the thing that I use most often for parents in whom either the testing is completed and they're still just heartbroken and not believing it is that, you know, there are many things we know about autism and there are lots of things we don't yet know. But one of the things that we do know is that getting early intervention into the hands of a child and family makes all the difference in the world. And that if we can get the services to your child early on, we know that language skills do improve. We know that overall cognitive skills do improve. Social skills can move along. And so usually presented with that frame, that early intervention makes an enormous difference. Parents are um, more accepting. I also, because we come in my particular clinic from a very relational frame, we talk a lot about how it is the relationship that you have with your child and that you will be helping them with these skills that makes an enormous difference. And we often point to something that we've seen them do in the session to say, do you remember when you did this or when you pointed that and they looked at you, that was beautiful. So we want to sort of restore the parent's sense of self-efficacy and their truly crucial
2: role in kind of creating what will happen with this child. And I would, I would add, you know, to that, Sheila, is usually when we comment on, you know, the positive aspects and how the child responds to the kid, that's usually when we get a lot of tears from the parents. I mean, those, those are the moments where they're, I mean, they're kind of looking for, you know, looking for us to confirm the fact that this child does have a special relationship with you, and they are at their best with you. And we, we also talk a lot about that. So, you know, when we're asking parents questions, um, especially with parents who are hesitant, and we also get so many of those, like um, in the clinic, Sheila does a couple different clinics, but she also has one clinic in particular where people aren't specifically referred for autism. but a large percentage of them end up having autism. So she sees a lot of those like very unexpected diagnoses. I see the ones primarily who they're coming to me because someone has said it. Um, But even in those circumstances, a lot of the parents are really hoping that we're going to say no. They're coming in with that hope, especially with the younger ones. I think With the older ones, they're coming and hoping we're going to say yes. But with the younger, right?
0: Because something's got to be wrong. Is there a name for this? Whereas the younger ones, they're still hoping that it's going to be, you know, normal. I I sometimes have told people too, like, you know, this label makes it difficult, but we really have to look at what's your child doing and how do we best help. And sometimes the label does get you services, and um, and it's it's hard and. It doesn't change what your child, the capabilities that they have. If we call it something, it's still, they still, it is what it is right now. But this early intervention, maybe you guys could talk a little bit about um, what exactly does ABA do? I mean, how does that actually help OT speech? Why are those things important?
1: We both got plenty to say, I'm sure. I was just going to piggyback on one thing you said and then, I'll, and then we'll talk a little bit about the interventions. I totally agree that um, taking this stance that early intervention makes a difference and that sometimes parents, when they come in, they hear your child is gonna get a some score on some test. And if they get some score, they have autism. If they get a different score, they don't have autism. And the reality is truly this is a spectrum. And the children that I feel most sad about are not the children who score just over the scorable line because they can get the services, but the children who still have a lot of what we used to call PDD-NOS, we sometimes now call ASD phenotype, but but we can't qualify them for services. Those are the ones that I feel most sad about. And why? Because we do know. So ABA, there are versions of ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis. In its purest form, ABA is sort of the repetition of discrete trials that are meant to scaffold a child toward some of of the things that they're lacking, like eye contact, nonverbal communication, moving them toward language skills. ESDM, or the Early Start Denver model, which is very similar to floor time, is a more play-based and developmentally appropriate um, version, if you will, of an intensive therapy. But it more follows a child's cues. It is more play-based. And it sort of lets the child lead a little bit, as opposed to the therapist presenting the next prompt. And all of them are working towards specific behavioral goals in very small steps. They're intensive therapies. They typically are in the range of 20 hours a week. They may be home-based. They may be center-based. And the entire portfolio, if you will, of treatments for autism typically include um, an an intensive behavioral therapy, speech and language therapy often occupational therapy for some of the sensory sensitivities, um, sometimes physical therapy. Then there's a big educational component, right? So we always recommend that the, the families contact the school or the preschool program, the intermediate school district, to get early intervention, early educational interventions into these kids' hands. And then typically we will get genetic testing just to rule out the possibility of a chromosomal anomaly. So those are the that's the big portfolio. And I should say before I launch into this whole thing, which is very typical to what I say with families, I also pause as Sarah did, to say before I start on all, I just I've given you a diagnosis. I want to pause right now and I want to ask how you're doing. How is this for you and who have you talked to? Because it gives It gives parents permission often to cry and for us to say, I want before you go down into the the autism speaks and the chat room and the dark hole that is the internet, I want you to very mindfully take care of yourselves and have know what you're doing with family members because there's a lot
0: there. That reminds me, um I took the Cleveland Clinic has these courses for docs on how to talk to patients and doing a better job. And one of them is how to deliver bad news. And one of the things is to give the diagnosis without dancing around it, you know, be, be clear. I'm concerned that your child may have autism or the test is consistent with, and then to wait and rather than being rushing in to try and soften the blow is just to wait. And so that pause, I think is, is really important. You know, it's not your fault that this child is different. I mean, it's not the parent's fault and it's not the clinician's fault, but how do we make make the situation as best as we can? And it's true with any kid. How do we help children who have any kind of delays be the best that they can be?
2: Yeah, I would add, you know, I, I think a lot of parents, the first time, um, and, you know, parents say it to us like this, like the first time someone said the A word, <laughs> um, like the C word used to yeah. be for cancer. Right. So the first time someone says the A word, it's like a very, it's a big moment for them. It's something that they remember. They remember who mm-hmm. told them and where and how, and we always hear that story. And it's interesting um, how parents reflect back on that experience. A lot of them will say the first time someone told me I was angry and upset and." um now i look and see they did a great job trying to tell me and i wasn't ready at that moment so so i would just kind of keep in mind i think as the physician i mean you for pedi- for pediatricians and family practice docs like you guys have the benefit of having a long standing relationship with families you know being a meaningful part of their life um and i think that that goes a long way I would add to that, um, just to highlight one other thing Sheila had kind of touched on, but to expand on it a little bit, is that I do think it's important to highlight when you're talking about um, a concern for autism, this idea of asking them what they think is in the realm of possibility to explain these developmental differences. And I I usually mention it that way rather than delay, because it may not be a true delay. And actually the literature suggests actually that the majority of kids with autism may not have a language delay. So it's important not to be overly focused on the language delay, but just that it's not, it's gone unexpectedly somehow. It's different somehow. And then also to with parents, we do a lot of, like after we say the A word, then we kind of describe like what went, well and what didn't for the same symptom like for example in talking about eye contact like did you see like when they wanted to throw that ball to you they looked right at you and smiled and that moment was so beautiful but also when they were playing on their own they were trying to fix something and they needed help and they kept trying and trying and didn't look at you for long periods of time So there are times when they are looking at you and times when they're not looking at you. And part of the issue is that their eye contact is not always consistent. So that's a framing usually that I give to parents that once a kid develops a skill, we expect their use of that particular area of development to expand and grow and grow into significant consistency so if something is occurring inconsistently even though they can do it that is a concern so that's something i think that confuses parents a lot like but my kid does do this sometimes like right. they do talk to me sometimes they do make eye contact sometimes they do and and so we try to highlight it's not that they can't do it it's, it's just not that consistent they, they just do it, don't do it consistently don't do it enough like the kid, another kid that we saw this week, he has normal language development. He was four. But in the course of an hour, he probably said two sentences. Mm. So does he have language? Yes. Does he use it enough? Right. So, so just that idea with parents, like moving them towards like your kid is that he has all the skills, like he can do so much. And with you, he looks so great. And our goal is to get them to look as good as he looks with you, with Everywhere. everybody else. Like we want yeah. him to show like that wonderful, cute, like- Let image. him
0: shine. There's, Let like, him yeah, shine. Yeah,
2: exactly. With everybody, like yeah. helping them kind of frame it towards you love him so much because he does so many great things. Yeah. And and we also frame it as a, as a huge asset,
1: as Sarah points out, but also one that is- is um, great in terms of predicting response to treatment, right? right. Has this sometimes suggests we can we can hook onto that and right. allow treatment to really expand it to all circumstances. Right.
0: I so, think we have to have a, a huge degree of compassion, and empathy, and and I hear that so much in your voices, and I'm sure that both of you, when you have to work with these families, that it's both heartbreaking, but that you because of who you guys are, connect with them and and can deliver this so kindly that maybe they can hear it and maybe not the first time. Maybe they need to think about it. I just like any difficult diagnosis. I mean, if someone's told that they have cancer, you know, that they may not hear anything else after you've said that and you may have to revisit. So that idea of why don't you come back and we'll talk about it some more. And I think you're right from a pediatrician standpoint. We get to see them over time and I like being able to say, oh my gosh, his social skills are, you know, his, he looked at me and, you know, boy, he said so much today and that's really fun. I saw one of my moms yesterday outside of work and I hadn't seen her child in a long time and very unhappy. This was an older kid and he's 17 and she said he has a friend and I was like, yay, (laughs) a friend. So. Well, let's talk a little bit about that sort of, uh, those older kids. I, one thing, um, one is the ones that we miss because they, first of all, look normal um, or, you know, like they look like any other kid, but their behaviors are quirky and off and they have trouble with other kids. At what point, I mean, I just think back now, like I am so sure that I have missed kids until even later when somebody said, you know, maybe I was calling MC3, you know, our child and adolescent psychiatrist and saying, you know, this kid's doing X, Y, and Z. And, you know, Sheila might've have said, have you ever considered, could this be like autism? And it's like, oh my God, I didn't even think about that. What, what about that situation? Because this happens all the time. It does happen
1: frequently. I'll say a few words and then Sarah works a lot with this age group. We see lots and lots and lots of these kids and they are commonly the kids who do have more typical language development, who do have more typical cognitive development, but for whom as the social trajectory takes off in later elementary school and high school, you begin to see these kids move away from the developmentally normative trajectory. Often they are kids for whom some of the signs and symptoms might be historically what we would have called Asperger's. So these might be the subset of kids who are behaviorally rigid, who have difficulty with sort of my way or the highway who don't appreciate sarcasm or humor. And for whom, yes, they have language skills, but if you really parse the language skills their speech is a little more rote, a little more formulaic. They might have scripted speech. They might be a little bit more stereotyped. They might be, fat, you know, bright as bright as anything, but they're fascinated. Or historically, they've been fascinated by dinosaurs and then by something else, and then and they talk about it all the time in a little professor kind of way. Well, I was like, going to say
0: usually that that language that you're like. how old is this kid you know they sound like they're 15 and they're eight you know like where did they learn that um and it's so you know in many ways it's endearing and cute as an adult
1: and you have that wow response but if you're a 12 year old age mate you're not saying wow you're saying this kid is a geek so those kids we see we see lots and lots of those kids and I want to It to Sarah who sees more of them than I do for sure.
2: It's common, I would say it's becoming less common as people begin to recognize it more. And I would also add that making a diagnosis at an older age is definitely more challenging. The kids are usually have multiple psychiatric comorbidities, and that piece is often very confusing um what is adhd related social dysfunction social anxiety related social dysfunction depression related social dysfunction versus autism and related social dysfunction and parsing that out sometimes takes time i can tell you even even for us when we do this all the time it is sometimes confusing even for us so i i think that it's important just to keep in mind that it may not be clear cut and it may take several evaluations in order for someone to achieve clarity on someone's symptoms. I I agree with Sheila. I think, you know, I would say in doing doing an evaluation of an older kid who has not had a diagnosis of autism yet, but there has been suspicion, you know, part of the trick of doing the evaluation is that, You have to, similar to younger kids, but in a different way, you as an adult have to not fill in all the gaps. So often when you're seeing an older kid, what you don't realize is that you're carrying the conversation. You're making it work and making it happen. So, you know, And to try to step out of that to see how a kid can fill in those gaps. And that is that reciprocal conversation piece. So for example, like if anyone sees me in clinic, I always have like my trainees know I have like the same eight stories. I always say, you know, one of them is like how um, we had like a fish tank that had a crab and it escaped and like we found it like this elaborate kind of unusual, funny story and so the question with kids is, like, if I pause in between, how much are they going to continue to ask me mm. about what's happening or how strange that is? Um, how do they relate that to their own life experience to continue the conversation forward? So as an adult, if a kid comes into that conversation and responds unusually, so I, if I say, like, then we woke up in the morning and it was gone, pause, 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 pause like you're expecting the kid to say next, where was it, right? And usually as an adult, what happens is we pause, they don't say anything, and then we continue, right? So it's uncomfortable, I think, for adults to kind of let the conversation hang uncomfortably. Um, But often that is what's happening. um, And you don't realize that you're doing it. So that's that's one element is to kind of let the conversation remain uncomfortable as you're talking with the kid. Um, but the other important piece, and this is challenging I think to do in a pediatric setting is that you have to you have to like talk a little bit about yourself. So right now you have a good excuse, right? Like everybody knows about coronavirus. So as a pediatrician, you could talk about it. Like, wow, this is really scary. Like it's I've been really stressed out. Pause. You know, so how does a twelve year old react to that kind of statement? You would expect them to say something, anything like if they're not going to say something about you, like, oh yeah, i I, I hate not being able to see my friends or um, yeah, things are stressful or something um, to help carry the conversation forward.
0: That's very um, interesting that um reciprocity. I think about, like, uh, with babies, that conversation that happens between a baby and a mom, you know, you say, oh, the baby, you know, oh, you're such a cute baby. You pause as though the baby were going to talk back to you. I mean, we do it naturally, but I think you're right. It gets uncomfortable to wait. And then sometimes they say things, they don't intend them to be funny, but they're hilarious. And the parents get that too. Some parents are horrified and some, I, I think if they can appreciate sort of the the humor in it. Um, it makes it easier. Um, I, I mean, I just find that some of the kids are so interesting. They're so um, curious and clever, but especially the kids that are really high functioning, oftentimes the social piece is so difficult because they know that they're different, but they can't figure out how to be less different. And then they're anxious or they're sad. And You know, I certainly have treated kids with attentional issues to see if that has helped. And sometimes it makes an enormous difference or the same for anxiety um, and see some lessening of symptoms, particularly if there's a lot of kind of that obsessive kind of behavior, although that may be a core symptom and may not get better right so Mm -hmm. what do you think about medications I know you know sometimes people think about Risperdal I I think the kids that are really difficult are the ones that are aggressive with bad you know they don't have much language and those are tough and we get kind of stuck about what are we going to do about that.
1: Could I just add one more thing about the social language and yeah go on to meds because we've got lots to say about that, too. Um, But the other domain that I think you can ask about pretty easily in a a PCP office are just, I will sometimes sprinkle in one or two questions from the ADOS. So when you're talking about friends and how school is going, you might ask a question like, so how are friends different from somebody that you just go to school with? Mm. And a child who has pretty good language skills might say something like, well, they're just your friends. And they're not being oppositional. They have no idea how to answer that question. They have no, or if you say, what makes you happy? And how do you feel inside when you're happy? They look at you like you're from Mars. They have no capacity to understand emotion, emotional language, some of the social pieces around friendships or their role in do, do you ever, do, do your brothers and sisters ever bug you? Oh, yeah, all the time. Do you ever do anything that, that bugs your brothers and sisters? No. And their parents are like...
0: <laughs> Everything you do bothers them.
1: <laughs> they have no idea in their role in other people. So. Well, and then
0: there are those kids that they don't want friends. Their people annoy them. I mean, I've, I have, in particular, think of one kid and he's like, I hate other kids. They... Uh-huh. Bother me, I would just rather do my Xbox.
2: Yeah. All right. To add, you know, to what Sheila's saying, like I asked a kid that question the other day, like, what does make someone a friend? And their response is, well, they're your BFF, and BFF stands for best friend forever. Right. So that very kind of literal understanding. So then I said, well, what makes someone your BFF? Well, we both decide that we're BFF.
0: It we're just it just is a BFF. There's right. no
2: so, understanding
0: um, of what friendship is,
2: right? So that and what what that really clues into actually all of those questions, whether it's like annoyance or friendship or emotions, is really insight, mm-hmm. like insight into struggles, insight into relationships, and being able to kind of share that insight with others. You know, so speaking to the. Medication piece. What I would add is, I would start off by saying that it's really important, like if you are thinking about medicines, to make sure that you're also already thinking about all those pieces that Sheila mentioned earlier about intensive behavioral intervention, OT, PT, speech and language in particular, to try to um, work with somebody with medications alone without including that piece. I think you're going to miss like huge opportunities for gains or improvement. And really, I think, you know, part of the difficulty, so the medications do work, particularly for psychiatric comorbidity, but I think it's important for people to recognize that their efficacy is lower than it is in kids without ASD. So if you're treating ADHD, for example, alone, the medications have a high effect size if you're looking at somebody with ASD plus ADHD the medications work but not as well. So in order to kind of fill those gaps you do need these other behavioral interventions or medical interventions in place as well.
1: The other the other I totally agree with that Sarah and the other thing that I often depending on where a family is in terms of their denial or their reluctance around accessing some of these services, and I know that in some parts of the state, it's not, it's not easy to access them, but a child, an eight-year-old boy with some aggressive symptoms and significant symptoms of autism, if, if you project forward 12 to age 12 or 13 or 14, when that little boy goes through puberty and is now a big boy and maybe a bigger boy, if somebody put him on Risperdal. Families don't totally appreciate you can't manage that child without these intensive behavioral interventions. And, and so we see just tragic cases all the time on our inpatient unit of children. Once they go through puberty, the families just cannot control them at all. And then you're, you know, they can't keep younger children safe. They can't protect them from girls in their home they're looking at residential treatment i mean it's tragic so i can't emphasize enough how important getting those intensive behavioral interventions onboarded early is
0: i would think that this would be a perfect intersect for pediatrics and psychiatry to help with that medication guidance and and i think certainly are these collaborative projects that are not only in michigan but around the country I think for listeners to find those resources and have the conversation. Because the reality is I may not have every child that I would love to have see a psychiatrist be able to do that, although maybe now more with telepsych, but at least to have the conversation, that thoughtful process. And honestly, I think that's true about any kid. I'm the longer I've been in practice, the less I use medication because you know, it doesn't build, it doesn't build skills. It's not strategic, whereas the other therapies are. So I think this is a nice intersect with peds and, and family medicine with psychiatry when you can get it.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I think, um, you know, like Sheila was saying, part of the difficulty is getting these other services is so challenging. I, I would just say it's important to keep it in your ongoing discussion with the family so so yes your child has adhd we can talk about adhd medication management however part of their attentional capacity is impacted by the fact that their language is still delayed and so that causes them trouble in the classroom or with peers so let's like really let's you know how can i help you kind of get them into speech and language therapy. So that we're kind of working on both things simultaneously, you know, and I can tell you just from following kids over years, there are times when I'm like, I look back and see, okay, I saw them eight times over this year and every visit I mentioned it. You know, and yet it's still like not happening. But I think it's still important for us to like continue to kind of talk about it and the importance of it.
0: Well, meds are easier in some ways. I mean, outside Mm -hmm. therapies, it's time consuming. It's expensive. Sometimes insurance doesn't cover it. So that access to services can be certainly in Michigan. And I would I am sure it happens around the country. That getting everything that you need for any kid. I mean, I think there's particularly those ones, Sheila, you mentioned, that don't, you know, qualify for the diagnosis, but they're not neurotypical either. And trying to get services for them can be near impossible. And yet they struggle, of course. So, um, yeah, I think that that piece about consider medication, you know, talk about it with others if you can, but, um, it, it's complex and comprehensive services really gives you the best outcomes. So I wanted to ask a little bit about high school and young adults, because I think as a pediatrician, you know, one of our big goals with parents is how do we get these kids through high school? You know, they oftentimes don't like to go to school. It's The social milieu is really difficult. And we we get them to graduation. And now what? we, you know, now are they going to, you know, what are they doing? And I have some of my kids that they're not doing anything and trying to figure out, well, what are the services for them? What are, what do you do then? And you said you work with adults with, with autism. What, What do you think, Sarah?
2: I think, you know, working with this population, it's really important to, to realize that um, we start thinking, as Sheila was mentioning earlier, we start thinking about adolescence and adulthood very early. So, not saying that you can't begin the conversation at sixteen or eighteen, but I would say that I do begin to have conversations, you know, at seven, eight, nine, and sometimes even younger about some of the things that I'm anticipating. So, you know, I saw a 12 year old yesterday, and in that conversation, giving the diagnosis for the first time. And in that conversation, we're talking about, you know, driving at the age of 16, like what it's going to take to do that, transition planning with the school district, and the gamut of what can occur post high school, whether that's like vocational training, you know, disability specific post high school education. And or typical post secondary education, and what does it look like for individuals on the spectrum in those various settings? Um, and you know, part of the challenge is that because there is such a wide range of abilities and ASD symptoms, it's very challenging to make a blanket statement about what a child would be able to do as they transition into adulthood. Um, one piece, though, that I have kind of come to over time, and I spoke about this with this family yesterday, is that when these kids are still kids, children and adolescents, just in the same way adults are scaffolding conversations, we are really scaffolding their functioning and performance, whether it's that's in middle school or high school or And in those areas specifically. So it's really important, I think, to think about it in a stepwise kind of graduated approach. I've had a lot of kids who, you know, did great in high school. And then when they enter post-secondary education, they really kind of tank. And it's sad to watch because, you know, you had like so many things you thought that they could do. But um, it really speaks to the level of support that they were getting before that is challenging to get in adulthood. Um, So it's important to begin to address some of those things early. So so what I mean by that is, you know, you really do have to start thinking very early about what do you think this child could do in the future or would want to do in the future um, in terms of independent living skills or work? or things like that. So it's like, for example, if they love animals, like can they begin to pet sit for people at the age of 10 or 11 with their parents? So you can begin to think about what are the skills that you need? What are the materials that you need? Then can they move towards volunteering with somebody? Then can they move towards within their school plan, having that be like assisted work? You know, so Really, thinking about it with a long term graduated approach, so we're
0: gonna um, have a lot of a lot of kids that should be paleontologists and traffic right. engineers,
2: right, right exactly. <laughs> so like cluing into what they love, kind of bringing them into those activities and moving them forward like yesterday, I also saw a kid who was really into science, you know, so can they like visit someone and really into chemicals, you know so well,
0: and aren't aren't those. Often the adults that are creating our vaccines and, you know, making inventions. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of adults with autism that are highly skilled. They may still struggle socially, but they, you know, I I, I guess we have to have hope that, you know, these kids can thrive. It might not look like what we think. But, you know, that's true with anybody. You know, what I thought my kids might become or do is very different than what they're doing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. They are their own people. Right.
1: No, it's absolutely true that that many of the best computer programs. And I mean, there's been lots of talk about why Silicon Valley has created that the rates of ASD in that area are so much higher than in other areas. Of the country. So there are definitely people at the higher end who absolutely have splinter skills that have been enormously helpful. There are also kids at the lower end. You know, if, if you could imagine, what would it be like to work in a solitary environment for 12 hours a day and just categorize something, put stickers on something, and make sure that they go into the right pile? that would not be pleasant work for me but for some of these children that is exactly what they want right. to do, like to do and do well so and in, honestly in some of the rural communities they've really done an outstanding i've lots of you know middle school kids who work evenings putting stuff back on shelves in some of the stores and that's just really lovely
0: Well, I know Sarah needs to step off. And so I appreciate this conversation. We could definitely, you know, I think we could go on about this for a long time. I did want to mention just for listeners, there is this lovely program on Netflix called Love on the Spectrum. And it's young adults um, looking for love and being coached. And it is beautiful. I mean, some of it is so painful to watch because it's so hard. But the people that are coaching them and these incredible parents, it is, it's heartwarming. I mean, they want love. You know, I think you said it earlier, Sheila, they just don't know how to do it. You know, the kids don't know how to connect because it's, it's just, they're not wired that way, but you know, they want to be loved and whatever that looks like, it may not look like we think love should look like, right? So, um. Well, listen, I uh, so appreciate your time. And again, we may need to revisit this because I my sense is that you guys have lots to share. Um, so any other parting words before we sign off? Thank you for doing it, Leah. I
1: appreciate
0: your your willingness to do this and just
1: to wish everybody a good holiday season if you're watching this before. and. Um, regardless to stay safe and um here's to a vaccine for all of us. You're here. Sarah <laughs>
2: yeah, and I would agree. I mean thank you for doing this. I think I, I would also add that, you know, the role that a primary care physician plays in the life of a individual with autism is just so meaningful. I mean really um these children and families see you guys as their lifeline. Mm. Um so just you know, to thank you, Leah, and everyone else, you know, for everything that you do for kids with ASD. And that, you know, Sheila and I are here. If people have questions, Um, we're happy to be helpful in any way if we can.
0: Well, thank you. And I I often tell residents and, and some of my younger colleagues, like use your doctor title to get things that you need for kids. You know, whether it's with insurances, whether it's with this, the school. I mean, if you need to say, I'm Dr. Gugino and I'm calling about this kiddo and this is what I need. It's okay. Throw your weight around a little bit with it. it, it it's powerful. And when used for good, it is a very, very powerful tool. So, well, thank you both. And, you know, I hope that we all get through the, the dark winter and that there is um, hope on the, on the other side. So you guys be well and be safe. Thank you. A huge debt of gratitude to these incredible psychiatrists that I have had the good fortune to meet. I could have listened to them for much longer, and I filled up two pages with notes. So here are my takeaways. Number one, always listen to parent concerns and take them seriously the watch-and-wait approach may be too late. Number two, early identification and evaluation makes all the difference. It improves language and cognition. Number three, delivering the diagnosis can be really difficult and painful for patients. Dr. Mohia Dean referred to it as the A-word, and that parents remember the day of the diagnosis often vividly. It's helpful to let them know that they've done an amazing job, but that sometimes their children are learning and responding differently. Asking the question, Have you ever noticed anything? Have you ever Googled anything about autism? Or have other family members ever said anything? might be helpful. And then to let parents know we want to make sure that we aren't missing something and that more testing could be helpful. Number four, early symptoms that are sometimes difficult to spot, but maybe they are well before the age of one are how babies track. Is there social referencing? And Dr. Marcus talked a lot about how kids, when you show them something new, often will look back at their parent and then look at the object. They may look up, lift up their arms. um, And she described, I think, a beautiful term, that your baby is falling in love with you. There may be nonspecific self-regulatory symptoms like difficulty with sleep and babies that are hard to console. Or conversely, The baby that is too easy and plays by themselves. Number five, ABA and its accompanying treatment, ESDM, are scaffolds for interaction and behaviors. ESDM is play based, and speech, OT, sometimes PT, and educational supports are critical. Number six, older kids with strong language skills can easily be missed, even by the experts who do this all the time. Concrete questions to them, such as, can you tell me about what a friend is? Or how do you know you're happy? Or what is happiness? And then pausing and listening, because kids sometimes don't understand these kind of more nuanced questions. Number seven, a trick of evaluation is to not fill in the gaps, asking questions and then wait. The response or lack of an expected response response, like a logical progression of a story, is off. Number eight, begin to think about the trajectory to adulthood early, as early as seven, eight, and nine years of age. This is one that I really wish I had done a better job on because I know that waiting until junior year is too late and that we really need to look for those opportunities for our children as they become adults. Number nine, medications may be helpful for some of the psychiatric comorbidities, but not necessarily the core symptoms. You can certainly see anxiety, ADHD, and aggression, but medication should only be considered after there has been intensive therapies such as ABA, OT, and speech. I think that's true for most psychiatric conditions that we should really exhaust the other treatments before we embark on medication. And this is where the programs like MC3, which are in other states as well, where psychiatrists can consult with primary care, can be really helpful to help you sort through what the right choice might be. And number 10, as adults, kids may do really well who have splinter skills. And they, these may be some of our scientists who are writing computer programming and that some of the lower-functioning kids who are really good at repetitive tasks might be able to function in those kinds of uh, workplaces where they have to do something over and over again and really thrive in that environment. And hope is always important, and we need to offer that to parents. I also want to remind you about the ne- the Netflix series on Love on the Spectrum. It touched my soul. It is such a lovely program, so I hope you'll take a look at it. It makes me, oh, it's just so hard to watch the kids struggle, and it is so endearing to see the parents who love these kids so much and just want them to find love. So I hope you'll take a listen. As always, I am so grateful for your time. I know you're busy people, and that spending 40, 50 minutes, an hour with me is a lot of your precious time. But I hope this is helpful. And honestly, for me, it's one of the most fun things I've ever done in my life. So I appreciate your support. As always, if you can leave a review, I would be really interested in what you have to say. Be safe out there. I hope that the vaccine reaches you very quickly and that we can see daylight at the end of a very long and dark tunnel. May you find hope, joy, and wonder in all that you do. Enjoy your family and friends and hold them close. Until next time, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.